Hi, everybody. This is Pastor Tim from Holy Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Newington, New Hampshire. This is our weekly podcast of the sermon from the prior Sunday. Normally at this time, I have invited everybody to join us for worship at 8, 30, and 11. Uh, but right now we're in the midst of the global pandemic, and so we are not having worship in our building at 8, 30, and 11. Instead, you can find us online doing virtual worship using Zoom. You can find the information for all of that on our website at www.htelc.com. You can also like us on Facebook. And uh, those are the two primary ways in which to find our links to have worship with us. So it doesn't matter where you are, as long as you have an internet connection, you can join us for worship. So thank you for listening. We hope that you find the sermon meaningful and purposeful, that it connects to your life and how you interact with the world. And most of all, it reveals God's infinite love for you and all of creation. So we're going to go right into the gospel reading that's brought to us by Dick Topping. Thank you, Dick. This morning's gospel reading is from Matthew, the 15th chapter, verses 10 through 28. Then he called the crowd to him and said to them, Listen and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it is what comes out of the mouth that defiles. Then his disciples approached and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if one blind person guides another, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain this parable to us. Then he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and goes out into the sewer? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles. For out of the heart come evil intentions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the gospel of the Lord. The word of God for the people of God. All right, Dick, I noticed I heard a familiar sound in the background while you were reading. It sounded like your dog was shaking its head back and forth a little bit. Uh, so excellent. I love that aspect about it, even though when we're all in our all in our own homes, we get a taste of what each other's life is like. So the sermon 
take the Pepsi challenge real quick. Can I see Had anybody take the Pepsi challenge when it came out back in the mid eighties or so? Raise your hand if you did the Pepsi challenge or remember the Pepsi challenge, whether you took it or not, anybody remember it? Raise your hand if you remember it, right? So we're gonna start off our sermon, the sermon this morning with that old commercial from the Pepsi challenge. This is the taste, this is the test. Pepsi versus Coke, the Pepsi Challenge. Pepsi. And all across America, more people pick Pepsi, Pepsi. time Pepsi. after time after time. Pepsi Cola. Oh, what a time. It's gonna be Pepsi now. The winning taste is Pepsi. It's gonna be, gotta be, gonna be Pepsi now. Taste what Pepsi's giving. It's gonna be, gotta be, gonna be Pepsi now. All right, so let's find out what the Pepsi Challenge has to do with this scripture reading. We all have our brand favorites, don't we? You just saw a commercial for the Pepsi Challenge. Do you remember that going on in the mid 80s? I remember as a kid, I always wanted to see it out somewhere, like if we were going to a mall. I always hoped, fingers crossed, that I'd be going through and the food court would be there and there'd just be a setup and you could see the Pepsi Challenge, you go and take it because I knew if I had the choice, uh, if I had the chance, maybe it's a better way of putting it, I would pick Coke over Pepsi, because we're loyal that way to our brands, aren't we? Think about it. Are you a Chevy or are you a Ford person? McDonald's or Burger King? Apple or Microsoft? Uh, Marvel or DC Comics? We have all of these things going on in which we, held, uh, we favor one over the other. What's interesting about that Pepsi Challenge commercial is that in the end, it didn't work even though the results are exactly what the people of Pepsi wanted to occur. People overwhelmingly chose Pepsi over Coke. In fact, it had such an effect on Coke. Do you remember what Coke's uh, reaction to it was in the mid 80s? What did Coke come out with? New Coke. And it was a disaster. Nobody liked New Coke. Because what Coca-Cola did, they saw they were losing the Pepsi challenge. They saw overwhelmingly people preferred the choice of Pepsi in a blind taste test. And so they changed their formula to make it more similar to what Pepsi's is. And they put that out in new Coke and people didn't want it because it wasn't really about the flavor of the drink that people wanted. People wanted the brand of Coca-Cola. So what did Coke do? They reintroduced Coke, this time as Coca-Cola Classic. Remember, that's when the classic came in and you saw it on their labeling everywhere. And people went back to, um, or they continued on with Coca-Cola Classic. It didn't matter if Pepsi, they chose Pepsi in their taste test. It didn't matter if new Coke was more similar to Pepsi. They were loyal to their brand. They didn't want to leave it, even though their taste buds were telling that they liked something else, and they wanted to remain with Coca-Cola Classic. I bring that up because I think we do that all the time. We are presented with uh, a set of information that is different than what we currently believe or what we hold to be true or what we want to be true. And then we don't know what to do with it. And so there's a term for this when we have terms that go against each other, something that contradicts a long held belief. And that is cognitive dissonance. Again, what cognitive dissonance is, it is 
when we have one idea that we believe to be true and we are presented with other information on that contradicts it or that challenges it or maybe it makes us think well maybe that old long-held belief isn't as solid as i once thought and when we're um, confronted with cognitive dissonance we could react to it in many ways right there's several ways in which we react to it one uh, we admit that we were wrong and we change our views cognitive dissonance wow i do like pepsi better than coke i'm going to buy pepsi the next time i go to the store and i'm going to become a loyal pepsi follower so we admit and we change we admit a change another thing that we can do is to uh, admit but not change admit and ignore yeah i chose pepsi that one time but I still really like Coke better. Yes, I might have, but I don't want to, I'm just going to put it out of my mind. If somebody comes by and says, did you do the Pepsi challenge? Nope, I didn't. I'm going to ignore it. Uh, so we can do that. The other thing we can do is simply deny or justify. And maybe the example I gave here is to admit and, and ignore it. Uh, or justify it well here's the reason why that i chose pepsi to begin with or that's not really correct um, but we will find a way in which we are uncomfortable with this cognitive dissonance idea we don't like the way it makes us feel and so we find a way to discredit it also let me go back and take it again let me go back and try that i'm going to try that pepsi challenge again and again and again and this time, now that I know what I want to choose, now that I know the difference between the two, I'm going to go into it. I'm going to choose more of what I want, right? So we can deny or justify or discredit. We tweak it. And I think this is so common of what we do today. Wouldn't you agree that in our world, we are constantly new information is coming out new information things are being discovered all the time or they're being revealed and so we have ideas that we once held and then new ideas come along and then we have to decide what do we do with these new ideas how do we incorporate them into our way of being it's really hard to admit and change we don't want to do that do we we lose face we're embarrassed, we're considered a flip-flopper, all of those kind of things. We would much rather admit and ignore or deny, justify, discredit. And that leads us to something else. When we do this, we have, we have cognitive dissonance. That leads us to something called a confirmation bias. These are terms maybe you're familiar with. You know, you can do a Google search easy enough or a basic psychology class somewhere and you're going to come across cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias. So this is what confirmation bias is. It says, I know what I believe. I'm going to find the information to support my belief. Okay. I know I like Coke better. So I'm going to find all of those things. I'm going to, I'm going to discount deny or justify 
that times in which I'm going to find a reason why it's not true because I don't want to believe that. And I'm simply going to follow the things that I want to believe. We do this all the time in our world. I mean, this is what fuels 24-hour news. It's why so many of us watch the news that we do because it tells us what we already want to believe rather than watching something that might give us a different opinion. And now we have to determine what we do with that opinion. I don't want to have to deal with this cognitive dissonance. This is hard and painful. It means I have to think deeply about something. And I have to admit, I don't know if I want to say the word I was wrong, but I have to see new ways of seeing things or new ways of believing or new ways of acting. And so I will look for confirmation bias so I don't have to deal with this. Tell me what I want to believe so I can avoid the discomfort of new information that is out there. We all do it. This is why I bring this up this morning. We have a passage in scripture that is really, uh, some people might call it the most troubling. Some people might call it the most confusing. Uh, Many scholars aren't sure what to do with it because we have a story about Jesus and the Samaritan woman in the second half of it, or the Canaanite woman, sorry. Jesus and the Canaanite woman. And Jesus acts in ways in which we don't expect Jesus to act He greatly insults this woman by calling her a dog. He denies her humanity. And I think this is done so he can justify the treatment that he gives her. I don't have to help because this is who you are. And she challenges him on that. You know what's crazy is that she doesn't even say, I'm not a dog. She says, but dogs still need help. And so she's challenging Jesus as if I still have some worth though, don't I? Shouldn't I still, am I not still in need? Are my needs not of value? And so I, part of me wants to wish, or part of me wishes that she would have challenged more. Jesus isn't saying she's not a dog, but let's work with what we have. But Jesus is confronted now. What does he do? Because he first says, I'm not, you know, I'm only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then after she pleads with him, but I really need your help. He gives her his help. Her faith has made her well. Can you imagine the response of the people that heard this in the time it was written? At first, I think they're probably cheering on Jesus because you have the Israelites and the Canaanites were enemies that go back centuries. If you remember the story of when uh, the Israelites came out of Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea and they wander in the desert for 40 years and they go into the land of milk and honey. We always had this idea that the land of milk and honey was empty. As if they walked in and you just imagine birds floating around and waterfalls going and rainbows there. And it just, things were plentiful. We forget that according to scripture, that land wasn't empty. It was occupied by the Canaanites. And so we have story after story about this conflict between the Israelites and the Canaanites. And the Israelites really devaluing the lives of the Canaanites so they can take it over and set up occupation in the land that was already occupied. 
And so Jesus is first is reinforcing this view. The people that are hearing this story the first time are thinking, yes, this is a Canaanite woman. We conquered them before. You don't deserve our help. We're going to do it again. Jesus, stand your ground. But then Jesus, it seems like he is given this point of view that might have run counter to the story that he had once been told. He now has to deal with his cognitive dissonance. This woman still has needs that he wants to deny, and now he has to decide, what am I going to do with this? Do I change and grant her the help that she needs? Do I ignore her? Do I deny, justify, and discredit? And this seems to be a turning point in Jesus' ministry. For we know that in the end, Jesus says, go out, right? The end of Matthew ends with, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That Jesus no longer is just for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Rather, Jesus is for everybody. And maybe Jesus had to come to this realization. I know Jesus is God, right? There's this connection. But Jesus is also human. That there's this duality, there's this conflict going on with him, and he's God and he is human. He knows everything, and yet he has to learn everything. So often we think uh, Jesus just knows, and we might come up with an excuse for this passage in which he's just testing this woman because we can't handle the fact that maybe Jesus has to learn and grow because that's different than what we think. That creates some cognitive dissonance within us that... Jesus didn't maybe know everything, but he had to learn and grow. And so we say, he's just testing the woman. He knew what was going to happen all the time. It was her that she had to change. What if Jesus had to learn and grow? What if Jesus was presented with new ideas? And he had the courage to say, ah, I hear your point of view. You do have worth. You do have needs. And I can do something about it. Our faith should allow us to do that, right? We've talked about this before, theology of the cross versus theology of glory. Theology of the cross should allow us to pull back the curtain, to see things the way they really are, to admit it, and to change. Because our value is not that we have gotten it right in the past, Our value is established, which means, and I've said this before, we're not worried about being right. We're worried about getting it right. Getting it right. God loves you, period. Period. We live in a world in which I know it feels like we're being turned upside down. We don't know what to believe. Things seem to be changing faster than we can keep up with. There's always something new to learn, and it's exhausting. I get it. It's exhausting. When we are exhausted like that, we simply, I don't want to put in the work. Let me just believe what I believe, and I want to hear people to tell me what I want to hear. God empowers us to receive new information, to be strong enough to take on that cognitive dissonance, to admit and change, right? That's confession forgiveness. I used to think one way, now I'm thinking another way. 
To admit who I was is not who I'm created to be. And God, help me be who I'm created to be. God says you're forgiven. So go up and try again. God says you're not perfect and that's okay. It's okay to be wrong. You don't have to be right, but let's work toward getting it right. To me, that's the powerful thing about this passage. It's not that, I, I don't know, Jesus was wrong. And now if Jesus is wrong, what does that mean? Was Jesus not God? Did Jesus not, did, you know, and now everything crumbles. Rather, Jesus grew. He became more of who God called him to be. And that's what we're called to do. The amazing thing about grace, right? It meets you where you are, and it does not leave you there. It pulls you forward into God's future. A future that is unknown, at least to us. And when things are unknown, things are scary. But we trust, we do not go into this future alone. We go into this future with God above us, beside us, below us, within us. Leading the way. Isn't that part of the hope of communion? Is that God isn't distant, but God is as close as things as simple as bread and wine. God is there in the ordinary. And we take the ordinary in which God is and trust that God is with us. That we are no longer ourselves, but we are becoming something new. May you know that who you are, who you were, is becoming who you were meant to be. Amen.